What is it? The main thing I got from it was like this sense of feeling seen and validated. Well, why does it have to be this way? This book was placed in my hand for this moment. Insightful, learned a lot, wrote some quotes that I'm ready to like paint on my wall. I love this book! That we just kind of pull out some, some of the big themes that we see and, and talk about a few different ones. I apologize if most of my contribution has K-pop references. Alternative book title, The Feminine Mystique Part 2. You were really just gay all along. <laughs> Welcome to Book Club. With Julia. And Victoria. We are two lifelong friends who read a book and talk about it each episode. This is a podcast where we explore new perspectives and we use books as tools for personal and community growth. This week, we are reading This is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El-Mokhtar and Max Gladstone, about two time-traveling super soldiers from opposite sides of the time war who fall in love across the multiverse. And we will pause right here and say, watch your step. Yeah. There's big spoilers ahead, mega huge spoilers. So please be warned and beware if you care about spoilers. Otherwise, yeah. welcome to the party and it will be quite the party. It, uh, it we're will. excited for this conversation. Yeah. If you want to support us, you can support us for free by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our show on whatever your podcast platform is or most places. If you look in our show notes, anytime we link to a book, that will take you to our affiliate page on bookshop.org. And if you purchase any book from that page, we get a very, very small kickback that helps us buy books for this show. Bookshop.org is available, we learned, in more than just North America. It is actually not in Canada. It's so not it's in the Canada. US, UK, and Spain. Fascinating. Okay. So US, UK, and Spain. It was very specific trio there. And then if you would like to support us financially and want to join the party and just be involved in, in all of our stuff, you can become a member on buymeacoffee.com slash bookclubwithjv. Our most recent members exclusive content was we did, we have a little film club series where we just record ourselves on Zoom talking about the latest book to TV or book to film adaptations that we either love or hate. And so our most recent one was we did two Jane Austen episodes. So we did one on persuasion and one on fire island on how to do it wrong and right <laughs> and we've got some more plans for that site moving forward this sort of season this year so look out for that kind of stuff okay so let's get into it it's been like yeah. a hot moment since julie and i have recorded a full-length episode for you all that is about a specific book We've had some really great guests on the show. It's been really fun. We both were traveling places, changing hemispheres. So yep. it was good to have a little break, but I'm so excited to be back. And this book was not even on our agenda for nope. the rest of 2022. <laughs> it was maybe a distant horizon of a book. Oh, we should maybe read that someday. And um, then I said, hold the phone. And I screamed at Julia to talk about this book with me. So... The funny part, too, for me is I completely forgot that Julia had recommended this book yeah. on the podcast. And I was like, Julia, I started reading this book. It's fascinating. You would love it. You should read it. You should read it right now. It's called This is How You Lose the Time War. And she's like, yeah, I know. I told you. I told you you should read that book. And I was like, <laughs> right. I recognized the cover while I was browsing the library before I flew to India. And yes, I flew to India with several library books, which was a poor decision because it made my bag very heavy. But I'm really glad I did have this book with me. I couldn't shut up about it the entire time I was reading it. And in like the four weeks since I finished it. Yeah, so this is important to us. Five yeah. stars. My experience was great. I would definitely reread this book. That's my personal criteria. On Storygraph, when I give a five star rating, it's like, I love this book so much, I will read it again. Mm -hmm. And so this is a true five star rating from yours truly. High praise. Yeah, I have been meaning to read this book for a while and I literally recommended it to myself and Victoria on a previous episode and then I think I may have even convinced my friend to buy it and I was thinking like oh then I could borrow it <laughs> <laughs> which is exactly nice. what I did which is also how you and I like give 
birthday and Christmas gifts. It's like, I want to read this book. I will buy it for you. And I may or may not read it before I give it to you. (laughs) (laughs) And we've just accepted that this is how it works. So, yeah. My friend actually didn't, I don't know if she didn't like the beginning or she had trouble with like the narration style or something. So I was a little worried, but I borrowed it while she's like out of the country. And I actually also had a hard time following what was happening at first. Like the whole opening scene, I was just like lost. I think this is something I've talked about before, but I'm like very good at just continuing on in a book, even if I have no idea what's happening and I don't know if I'm comprehending anything I'm reading. Like I, I can just keep going. <laughs> it, it was like intriguing enough that I could get to like a quarter of the way through. And by the time I got to that point, I was like hooked. I was like, I have no idea physically where these people are or how they're contacting each other, but I love their letters and I'm so invested in their relationship. <laughs> And so at the halfway point, I was like so invested. I was like, I don't think I'm leaving until I've finished this book. And so I took the book to the park and read the whole thing and was literally crying in public reading this book. And there were other people like having picnics near me. And I'm sure they just saw me just like crying behind my, yeah, I I don't know what I looked like, but it was just such beautiful angst and it was incredible. So yeah, 10 out of 10, would read again. I'd be curious to see my experience going back to the top and seeing if I understand it better. <laughs> it does take a little bit to kind of like wrap your head around it because it's yeah. such a different world. There's really wonky time travel correspondence, which we'll get into And yeah, it definitely is kind of like a just hold your breath and wait until you adjust. Yeah. (laughs) And then you'll be able to just like take it all in. Yeah, because they they really throw you in the deep end. So you just really have to learn a whole new world system, all new, you know, terms. And you just suspend your disbelief a lot. So yeah. So a little bit about our authors. Amal El-Motar is a Canadian writer known for her speculative fiction, poetry, and reviews of science fiction and fantasy for the New York Times Book Review. She has previously taught creative writing at several universities, including University of Ottawa, and she lives in Ottawa with her spouse, Stu. And most importantly to Julie and I, she is a fan of the board game Wingspan. She has tweeted about it, at least recently. I was going to say excessively, but I think she's at least tweeted about it in the last week. And I was like, we should go play Wingspan together. Great bird game. A bird board game. Max Gladstone is an American writer best known for his fantasy series, The Craft Sequence. Among many fascinating accomplishments and life experiences that I found about him, Gladstone studied Chinese literature at Yale and lived and taught for two years in rural China. He has had a very varied career before he started as a writer. He's done many things. And in his free time, he's a martial artist, fencer, and fiddler, all things that make me think we'd be great friends. Yeah. So in an interview with uh, novelist Elliot Pepper, the two authors shared how their novella came to be. I loved it. It was so cute. They were pen pals that wrote letters to each other for about a year. Oh, this is so cute. (laughs) I know. And then Max was like, let's write a book together. And in his words, quote, it'll bring the universe into harmony and let the dolphins sing. (laughs) 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 What I also thought was really great about this interview, which we will link in the show notes, is that Gladstone talks about some of the experiences in his own life that he was going through at the time. He was on tour promoting his book, which is a very, you're constantly socializing at a surface level. Mm -hmm. And he felt like he was missing solitude and he was missing deep connection. And he would write letters with Amal, but he couldn't receive the letters until he came home because he was on the road so much. And so there's like these great parallels to the story itself of Blue and Red, our protagonists in the novel, talking about loneliness and waiting on each other's letters and kind of that waiting until you get home and you get a whole bunch of letters all at once. I thought it was kind of fun that those were some very personal experiences of their friendship that they tied into the story of our two characters. I really enjoyed what Max said about their experience writing together. He wrote, Amal would write a line that totally slayed me, just laid me out on the mat. And I'd think, shit, I have to give her something back that's at least that good. You get that sense of two rabbits racing one another. And then there's the joy of swapping laptops, each seeing what the other has written, cackling, because it's better than you could have ever guessed. I think it's important to write for an audience that impresses you. 
And I also love the experience of writing for your friend, Mm -hmm. you know, like the audience. Yeah, they were going to publish this book to their collective audience that they've both been developing over years of being writers, but writing for their friend, writing for their co-writer to be like, oh, this will get them good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, they're going to love it. <laughs> Probably less intimidating than like trying to write for a particular audience demographic or trying to write for a particular publisher. Like, just write it for your friend. Yeah. And I think a lot of times that advice of like, oh, think of the person you're writing to or think of the person you're speaking to is a very kind of metaphorical thing for like speech writing or giving a presentation or something like that but when you literally are writing for your friend Mm -hmm. next to you (laughs) who is writing the next chapter (laughs) it's yeah quite more literal and intimate so that's a little bit about our authors I thought their friendship was the most exciting part so I focused more on that but they both have written a lot of really great works across the spectrum of genre and so forth so we'll pause yeah on the authors and head into the story. Yeah. So the story begins on a battlefield, just the latest casualty of the time war from the future, in which both sides reach back through the different strands of time to influence the past in order to achieve a certain outcome in the future. The people who enact these plans are these sort of time-traveling, futuristic super soldiers who get embedded into the strands of time in different ways. And we meet two of them, Red and Blue. That's not their true names, but that's what they call each other. And they are from opposing sides. In the first scene, we meet them because Blue has decided to write Red a letter expressing her mutual respect. Because they've been enemies across all of time and space. So they know each other pretty well. So Red replies, and this begins a long correspondence throughout time in which they reveal more and more of themselves and kind of find solace in each other. They realize how lonely they are and how they're sort of the only people who understand each other in a lot of ways. Eventually, they fall in love and it's beautiful and angsty and wonderful because it's like they can never be together They're supposed to be enemies, but they love each other. And then after Blue completes a particularly clever move in the threads of time, which is never explained and we don't really care what it is, Red is tasked with killing her. She writes Blue a letter warning her about the poisonous plant that she's created but blue doesn't want red to get in trouble because she loves her so she takes the poison anyway she eats the whole thing and we think all is lost red is like mourning over blue's body but then red has an idea from a memory that blue shared about a time when blue was sick and then changed. And so Red goes around through time consuming all the remnants of the letters that they wrote to each other in order to become just enough like Blue to infiltrate Blue's sort of home base, I guess you could call it, home planet, home universe, called Garden. She then kisses Blue with some of her own blood because she's immune to the poison to sort of inoculate Blue against this poison and save her life in the future. When Red escapes from this mission, she's captured and interrogated by her superiors. But at the very end, she receives a letter from Blue saying that they can be on their own side and that together they can win. And so we learn that Blue is alive and they're going to be on their own side of the war now and they're going to fight together. (sighs) Commence screaming. Commence screaming. My only note... I think, I mean, we don't know exactly the efforts they're doing that will change the future, but we do know that both of them are working towards their mutually exclusive futures. So in a lot of these, in the multiverse, a lot of the futures end with agents, the agency, which is where Red is from. The book describes it as a post-singularity technotopia, and Blue belongs to Garden, a single vast consciousness embedded in all organic matter. And only one, like, depending on which strand of the multiverse you're in, the future, or the I guess the present for Red and Blue in there, where they were from, one of those is, like, winning out. Mm. And so they're these mutually exclusive powers are going back in time and competing with each other to win more of those strands towards the end that would garner them more power over all of time and space. 
See, I did not know that, and I did not catch that, and I am now learning something new, and that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. <laughs> I It did take me a while to get that, too, and I thank many of the blogs and reviews that I've read on this book for like helping me gather my language around it, because it isn't really the focus of the book, yeah. but it is the backdrop on which it is presented, and a lot of those details are thrown at you in the very beginning when we're still like... What is going on? But I think a testament to how great this book is, is that you were like, I didn't understand the backdrop on which this entire book is based. And you still enjoyed it. I didn't it's a, care. <laughs> it's like really not the point of the book. It's no. just it's just the premise. It's just the premise. I basically accepted from very early on that I'm not going to understand how anything works. And I'm just going to paint everything as metaphor. And it's going to be just as good. So I enjoyed it. <laughs> So, okay, in our discussion today, we wanted to talk about the three genres of This is How You Lose the Time War, which I'm summarizing as Lord Byron's Letters of the Future. (laughs) (laughs) So in the first section, we'll talk about the romance. So Lord Byron, if you uh, remember that name from your literature classes, uh, romantic poet from the 19th century, known for his very romantic with a capital R from the romance time period, but also romantic as in love, romantic poetry of all forms. Very flowery language. Um, If you think of a man whose name is Lord Byron, the poet, (laughs) that's whatever you're picturing is probably right. (laughs) Lots of frilly shirts and collapsing dramatically on a chaise lounge and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. The the book is written in epistolary format, which is a very fancy term to say. It's a bunch of letters. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk about letter writing and how that form kind of influences the theme both of romance and of time travel. So our last sci-fi element, these letters are from the future. So we'll talk about how all these genres tie together and why we think it makes it uh, a great book. Sweet. So first off, romance. The writing style, I think, is what really hits you out of the gate as like, this is different. Yes. When I sit down to read a book that has been pitched to me as sci-fi, and I know it's been written in the last five years, I'm not expecting the writing style that we got. It is quite flowery in places, quite romantic, very descriptive and poetic. Mm -hmm. I found this wonderful meme that Amal had also reposted, and so we will link in the show notes. But your favorite part of the show where I just describe a photo, (laughs) I will now describe it to you. (laughs) It's these two birds saying, whoa, check it out. And they're like, what fiery foliage, supremely scarlet. They're looking at these leaves that are red. Seducingly sanguine, vividly vermilion, seriously cerise, remarkably rufous, partially puce, categorically cochineal, dot, dot, dot. It's really red. Reader had tweeted it at Amal, said, found this photo of you writing your parts of this is how you lose the time war. <laughs> and it's great. Do you want to give us like an example of, of what we're talking about here? Yes, I would. Okay, so this is like the very, very first page. This is sort of an example of what this book sounds like. All right. So when Red wins, she stands alone. Blood slicks her hair. She breathes out steam in the last night of this dying world. That was fun, she thinks, but the thought sours in the framing. It was clean, at least. Climb up time's threads into the past and make sure no one survives this battle to muddle the future her agency's arranged. The futures in which her agency rules, in which Red herself is possible. She's come to knot this strand of history and sear it until it melts. She holds a corpse that was once a man, her hands gloved in its guts, her fingers clutching its alloy spine. She lets go, and the exoskeleton clatters against rock. Crude technology. Ancient. Bronze to depleted uranium. He never had a chance. That is the point of red. See, that right there, I was already explaining the mutually exclusive futures. I just didn't <laughs> understand at all what it meant. <laughs> anyway, so you get, like, even that one sentence... The thought sours in the framing. That's like such an old school way to write a process statement, like a feeling statement, like in the framing, in the telling, in the whatever with an ing verb. Like no one does that anymore. (laughs) And it just gets flowerier from there. 
Yeah, like the meme, right? They're just coming up with more and more poetic and sort of metaphoric ways to describe things, especially colors. And sometimes, like, the prose was so flowery and metaphorical that, like, I at least had a hard time knowing what I was supposed to take literally and what was metaphor, especially, like, with all the technical stuff of them moving in and out of time in ways that are kind of hard to conceptualize, you know? And it, it's so interesting to have a romantic take on sci-fi, right? Like you talked about how unexpected it was. I feel like we normally rely on extremely technical language like Star Trek, right? They try and make it all sound real, all mm. scientific. And this book says, screw that. We're going to make it all sound like poetry. Like we literally wrote, like, did Victor Hugo co-write this? Like with, <laughs> it's like... You That man loves a sentence and he loves an adjective because he's just trying to make it as beautiful and deep with so much feeling, right? Whereas I think we normally think of sci-fi as like the absence of feeling. This book has so much feeling in it because of the way that it's written. And then like further along, as you get more into the story, it gets more romantic with a capital R, like the sort of romantic style of writing and also more romantic in the sense that there's a romance occurring as the love story develops. So this letter that Victoria is about to read is like sort of the pinnacle of the romantic writing style and also the romance. It's like where they admit their feelings for each other. Yes. Dear Blue. I wish I could see your triumph, knowing something of your mission, of the nature of your embedment. Having committed the beat of your footsteps to my heart, I sense the change you will wreck upon us. The season turns. You will be free from your recovery and from your task. I'll be sent, no doubt, to undo the damage you've caused. And we'll run again, the two of us, up thread and down, firefighter and firestarter, two predators only sated by each other's words. Do you laugh, seafoam? Do you smile, ice, and observe your triumph with an angel's remove? Sapphire-flamed phoenix, risen, do you command me once again to look upon your works in despair? I distract myself. I talk of tactics and of methods. I say how I know how I know. I make metaphors to approach the enormous fact of you on slant. I send you this letter on a falling star. Reentry will score and test it, but will not melt it away. I write in fire across the sky, a plummet to match your rise. Your praise cuts me, because though I speak so easily of certain things, though I rush through ground that to you seems mind, it's only earth to me. But your last letter, I am so good at missing things, at making myself not see. I stand at a cliff's edge in hell. I love you, Blue. Have I always? Haven't I? When did it happen? Or has it always happened? Like your victory, love spreads back through time. It claims our earliest association, our battles and losses. Assassinations become assignations. There was, I am sure, a time I did not know you. Or did I dream that me, as I've so often dreamed of you? Have we always fulfilled one another in the chase? I remember hunting you through Samarkand, thrilling to think I might touch the loosening strands of your hair. I want to be a body for you. I want to chase you, find you. I want to be eluded and teased and adored. I want to be defeated and victorious. I want you to cut me, sharpen me. I want to drink tea beside you in ten years, or a thousand. Flowers grow far away on a planet they'll call Cephalus, and these flowers bloom once a century, when the living star and its black hole binary enter conjunction. I want to fix you a bouquet of them, gathered across eight hundred thousand years, so you can draw our whole engagement in a single breath, all the ages we've shaped together. Do you want to pick up? Sure. I veer rhapsodic, my prose purples. And yet I don't think you'll laugh, or if you do, the laughter would delight me. Maybe I've overread the simple word with which you close your letter, but I can never overread you, and the word you chose is not simple. Maybe I overstep your bounds. And, to be honest, love confuses me. I've never felt it before this. I've had joy in sex. I've had fast friendships. Neither feels right for this. And this feels bigger than both. 
So let me say what I mean as well as I can. I sought loneliness when I was young. You've seen me there, on my promontory, patient and unaware. But when I think of you, I want to be alone together. I want to strive against and for. I want to live in contact. I want to be a context for you and you for me. I love you and I love you and I want to find out what that means together. Love, Red. Oh, baby. All right. I love that line. I want to be a context for you and for you, me. Yeah. I feel like the person writing this, if you weren't thinking, if you weren't trying to figure out the meaning of the, like, the very, you know, specific things about their victory and, and the time travel and whatnot. It could be someone in the 19th century sitting by candlelight writing this yes. love letter that they're going to send by horse to deliver yeah. across <laughs> yes. the county. Yes. Um, like, it's just, it just, like, drips with, like, romanticism. It, I don't know. It just, like, pulls at my heart. I love the colors. It feels like reading poetry. Like, I read yes. it. To myself, quietly, obviously, when I read it, but reading it out loud for the first time, I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm reading a poem more than I feel like I'm reading prose. It's the interruptions. Something I have to teach a lot is that 19th, early 20th century literature, they use longer sentences with a lot more interruptions and pauses in their thoughts. And so you get these sort of winding back and forth thoughts that are sort of essential to the romantic style. So you think of Victor Hugo, you even think of Jane Austen, though she's a little more pragmatic, but her style does have a lot of interruptions. I feel like that first that first two or three lines is a really great example of that. Yeah. So it starts out, I wish I could see your triumph. You mm-hmm. know, one full complete thought. Knowing something of your mission, so it's like an aside, of the nature of your embedment, Having committed the beat of your footsteps to my heart, I sense the change you will wreck upon us. The season turns. And so you've got these sentences with multiple parts, but then also broken up with these really short statements and things that feel maybe a little, um, obviously the time travel part, but other things that feel maybe a little more modern too. And that juxtaposition of long and short in the sentence and the phrasing, I think also reads very poetic to me. Yeah. So when it's being read out loud, All those pauses could sound like line breaks in the way that we would recite poetry now because it's you have to keep taking breaths in the middle of these sentences and it's like all these ideas kind of jumbled together and it it gives you this feeling of like the sentences are so full of emotions that you just can't put them all together and everything has sort of a connecting idea and this one has the most commas I think from that first paragraph and we'll run again comma, the two of us, comma, up thread and down, comma, firefighter and fire starter, comma, two predators only sated by each other's words. So the other aspect of romantic style writing is you have tons of examples of a thing, right? So normally writing teachers these days will tell you like you want to be very economic with your adjectives and you want to only use the best words. But like romantic style, you put all of them in. You put all of the words And if there's four ways to say something, you say it all four ways in a list with commas in between. And also their use of colors. I think the best example here is when they say my prose purples, right? Mm -hmm. So that's an extremely metaphoric way of describing how the two of them are sort of bleeding together as red and blue and it feels so romantic because it's like, oh, they're becoming... Like, they are meshing themselves together. But, like, if you're like, what does that mean, my prose purples? I don't... (laughs) I don't know, but it's damn beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, it makes you want to, like, sigh when you read it. And if someone asked you, like, on gunpoint to explain what it meant, I'd be like, I don't... I don't know. They they love each other. It's beautiful. They're purple. They're red and they're blue and now they're purple. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) The red and the blue also really stood out to me. Throughout mm. the, the book, we get these tropes, you know, enemies to lovers is the very obvious first one. They are enemies in a war, they become lovers. But the book really turns to be more of the star-crossed lovers. And we get a lot of Romeo and Juliet parallels. So much so that the authors even included a scene where Blue goes and watches a performance of Romeo and Juliet back in history. But we have the same colors, the Capulets and the Montagues, the blue and the red, kind of 
outlining those differences between the two. And we've got this element of poison or tricking people to think you're dead. The irony that comes out when there's a turn, we didn't realize that Blue was actually alive, Mm -hmm. um, that she survived the poisoning. We have Red contemplating suicide when she thinks Blue is dead. However, of course, we get the happy ending of this book, that Blue Mm -hmm. doesn't die, Red doesn't die, and that there is a hope that they can be back together again. Which is quite rare. Yeah, really loved that. And I think for me, reading the book, the ending became that much more gratifying because I expected it to be a Romeo and Juliet ending. I expected there to be nothing that we could take for our protagonists from this, except maybe a hope that the time war is over. You know, in Romeo Mm. and Juliet, the, the Capulets and Montagues, in their grief, come together and put aside their differences in vow to live in harmony again and that no one else should have to perish the way their children have because of the feud. But um, the powers of this book are so huge and so unemotionally attached to (laughs) individuals that I don't really think that could have been an answer. It couldn't have been like, well, they ended the time war once and for all because love prevails. Like, no, that wasn't how it ended. The the ending, you, you realize it's like, oh, I feel like this is the only way the book could have ended, but I was still surprised that it ended this way, which was there was a chance they could escape. So at the end, when Red is reading Blue's final letter, this is where the book ends, and Blue is, is giving ideas of what they could do. Suppose we reached across the burn of threads and tangles, cut through the braids knots. Suppose that we defected, not to each other's side, but to each other. We're the best there is at what we do. Shall we do something we've never done? Shall we prick and twist and play the braid until it yields us a place down thread, bend the fork of our ships into a double helix around our base pair? And I just like, that's like the image that I like go to bed every night and thinking of is like how their braids form this like infinity loop, the Mobius strip. The Mobius strip, yeah. They create a Mobius strip that they can live in their little part of the threat i don't know it's just so beautiful and i'm so excited about this ending yeah this ending is sort of offered as a possibility a little earlier on because when blue goes to see the performance of the play she writes in a letter to red of like i always love seeing in which threads romeo and juliet is a tragedy and in which ones it's a comedy and so you get this tiny tiny hint at that point that like this book could go either way and we don't know yet right and so maybe this is a version in some universe where it's a comedy where it ends with them living happily ever after instead of a tragedy the second element that's super important is the epistolary format aka half this book is letters written between red and blue right? Our two protagonists. So letter writing has been connected with the romance genre in general and also romance as a plot for a very, very long time, almost as old as novels themselves, particularly the English novel sort of came about one of the like original formats of a novel was that the writer presented it as a true story, as history, and that they were not writing this from scratch, that they had just compiled this sort of archive of real documents, which were mostly letters, which told the story of the protagonist, right? And so it's meant to be, you're meant to learn from their story. It was often a romance, but not always, and often were moral. So you, um, Jane Austen, came at the tail end of this and she referred back to it. Her books are actually full of references to the styles that originated the novel, but she sort of took them and ran with them and made them her own and made them much more interesting. But most of her books involve letter writing. And so the most classic example is the letter that Darcy writes Elizabeth sort of explaining everything. So this is like a very sort of classic, almost essential to the genre kind of novel format, particularly the English novel. And it's been interesting, I feel like, in recent 
like in the last year or so, I feel like I and my friends have been reading more and more books that employ this strategy. So I even think another book we've done on the show, Red, White, and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston, was epistolary, but they were emails, right? So they Mm -hmm. were trading, but they were love letters, right? They were love letters. They were sending emails back and forth that, again... I think something about it being kind of a classic literary strategy makes it feel more romantic because it feels old school, right? It feels more like you have to put a lot of work into writing letters and there's something about it it feels kind of like an ancient, you're pulling, you're drawing from an ancient love tradition, you know, <laughs> like telling stories through letter writing and, and romance through letter writing. So this book is very interesting then because we get from the very beginning that like we are employing the letter writing genre but also we're subverting it because this is sci-fi right this is romantic sci-fi so the very first letter is a physical letter it gets dropped off in this battlefield but then it said burn before reading and you burn it and then you read the ashes not the letter. <laughs> it is not explained how you read ashes, but no. you read the ashes. Yeah, there's a there's sort of all this fancy hand wavy kind of they write each other letters like in stuff. Very few of them are on paper in words. Like in lava mushes and like <laughs> I don't know. And like seed flavors. Like somehow they read objects. Yeah, one of my favorites is when Blue writes a letter in the rings of a tree that red yes. chops down. And so it's just decades of, of blue jumping through time to leave the letter in the rings of the tree. It's kind of explained as if maybe blue was using like a needle or something to puncture the bark. And so it like embedded itself somehow. I don't know. It's just, it's very creative. I, I do really enjoy the like, what could this be? And blowing every idea of what letter writing could be out of the water, but because it's a novel, you don't have to show us how it happened. You can just write the letter in English text on the page for me to read, and I don't have to try to figure out how they were reading ashes. In that interview I mentioned earlier with Elliot Pepper, Elmotar kind of explained this connection that her and Max saw in letter writing and time travel. I thought was really fascinating, so Mm -hmm. I'm going to read her thoughts on that. I think we were both coming to the book with a sense of wonder around the expression of time in handwritten letters. That sense of folding up a singular moment of yourself and sending it into the future to be read by a person who doesn't yet exist and who will be reading a letter from a person who no longer exists, but was preserved in the amber of ink on paper. Wonder, too, about time stoppages, that a letter can include someone having stopped perhaps even mid-sentence, walked away and returned to the letter three days later while the person receiving the letter reads it smoothly in a sitting, or vice versa. These all seem to touch on conceptions of time travel and intimacy, the vulnerability of committing a truth of yourself to your invention of a person. I feel like I want to know, I think this interview was conducted via like email because I'm like, yeah. this is so beautifully stated. If Elmer Tar just talks like this, that's amazing, <laughs> and we should have her on the show. Yeah. <laughs> we should just have her read something. Just speak. <laughs> if, if this is the way she speaks. Yeah. No, but yeah, I, I never really thought of that before. If I write Julia a letter, I'm writing it to the future Julia that will receive it. And when she reads it, she's reading it from the old version of me. I think the easiest conception of this is if you find an old letter from like, Uh, a friend you no longer talk to or a a person that you dated and you don't longer see it's like this weird relic of the past of in that moment that person felt that way about you or was experiencing that thing or going through that emotion I might decide to cut this out later but I have a story um (laughs) so when I uh was traveling once uh, a person I was I had gone on some dates with had given me some letters in advance for my trip a very romantic gesture of like, take these letters with you. And they had like the cute, like open when you're lonely, open when, you know, you are awake with jet lag or something like that. And one was kind of a letter asking for a more like formal relationship between us. But by the time I opened that letter, it had been months and Mm -hmm. I wasn't really sure that's what I wanted. And so when I asked this person kind of like, hey, like I opened this letter 
there was like this this weirdness because it was an old version of this person who had written the letter to that version of me that he knew. And now I was different and he mm-hmm. was different. And it was really fascinating. And I, I never thought of that as like time travel. I just thought of it as like a, well, that happened. But <laughs> yeah, the time travel element was really fascinating when we think of letter writing. Yeah, I I have a couple friends that I write letters to. You're one of them. And it's so interesting, right? Because I do love getting letters. I love getting mail. I love writing letters to people. But because we also can text and call each other, there's certain things that you put in a letter that like by the time if I write you a letter, if I put in some of the things that are happening right now, by the time you get it, you will already know about all of it (laughs) because I would have called you. (laughs) or I would have like sent you a picture of whatever thing in the moment and you would have like you know we're so used to more immediate communication and so a lot of times what you're sending is like your more ponderous like deep thoughts about like long-term stuff that you're sort of processing or or the other alternative is you create a little snapshot of like where am I right now? What am I listening to? What am I reading? You sort of describe your surroundings and you create this little image of this person in the past. And yeah, so it feels a lot like time travel because you are, I love getting a letter and and then immediately calling the person. Yeah. (laughs) And those are, I'm talking to two different people. I'm talking to the person in the letter And then also the person on the phone. Those are two different versions of my friend. So this idea of time travel with letters, I I said never really thought of the connection before, but we have seen a lot of connections with time travel and love stories. So a lot of time travel love stories in popular culture are presented as like inherently tragic, like the sense of inevitability that comes with being outside of time, of meeting people at different points in their presence than you know. I think of Doctor Who and River Song. So if you're familiar with the TV show, there is Doctor Who, who is, spoiler alert, married to River Song, but they are meeting each other in the opposite timeline. Like his first time meeting her is her last time seeing him right before she dies in front of him. Talk about traumatic. So their entire story always ends there. He always knows how she dies. So when, yeah, so when he like properly meets her for the first time, like he introduces himself, he already knows. He knows where the story ends. And he tries to fight it a little bit and they they try to see each other one last time where they both know. But it's like, I feel like for people who live in linear time, we have this sense that like if you had a love story as a time traveler, because this is something is always how it's going to end and maybe you know how it ends and there's something about like not being able to escape your fate and knowing what that fate is, it makes it inherently tragic. Even though technically everyone's going to die. So like technically every love story is a tragedy if you wait long enough. But they- <laughs> Technically. And like we do travel through time just in a straight line. But for some reason we, we can't imagine that you're, if you're weaving in and out of it at a different points than another person that that could be just as happy. The other example is the time traveler's wife. In this story, this dude literally, his time traveling is literally a genetic disorder that he has no control over. And so he experiences his wife's life out of order and he misses really important moments and she experiences linear time. And this, because he has no control over it, puts him in a lot of danger and just, it's a very sad book. I'll just say that. I think that sense of tragedy in the love story really ties into this feeling of like, there's like an existentialism to time travel because we don't like the idea of like, this is always how it was going to be. And this book does lean into that feeling of being trapped, of knowing you're going to die for a big organization, for a war you don't care about very much. But it also kind of subverts it. There is the fatalism, but I think one thing that really works for me is that it isn't as if they are meeting each other in a different order. You know, like that's usually what the 
the tragedy of like Doctor mm. Who and River Song is they're meeting each other in different timelines. And in the time traveler's wife, he's missing things in her life. However, we have two time travelers who th- we follow only their linear experience of each other. Mm-hmm. We don't necessarily find out that they had been involved in each other's earlier life until it is revealed in present time. You know, like, oh, that was you the whole time. It's not like, oh, Blue knew that was her. I don't know. It's, I don't know how to explain it. And time travel is really weird to talk about. But it feels yeah. like because they can jump in and out uh, and we're just following them in their present moment. We're not following them from when they were a kid. We're getting like all of them in present moment, but they just happen to be in different times and places. And so it's still their story moves in a linear way, but they use the power of time travel to, in order to change their fates. I don't know. Right. Well, it's it seems like they know where the other person is going to be. And so then they leave a letter there for them. Mm -hmm. Like, because their respective agencies sort of have records of where the different agents are operating, they it seems like they sort of know in what order they go to certain places and like leave letters there for them. I mean, it's like kind of like having intel, like knowing, yeah, okay, so like in a war setting, there was this attack on this village on yeah. this date at this time. And we have reason to believe the enemy's agent was there. But our agent can time travel. So they can just go back in time and she can just arrive yes. there and do something different or subvert that plan. Or in their case, leave a letter to be like, oh, Blue did that thing. I can just go b- jump back in time and leave the letter because I know she was there when that happened. Mm-hmm. And all the times that they get letters are at these kind of pivotal moments when they've made a change, they've completed a mission. And so they're, they've kind of time stamped themselves because uh, the strand changed or ended or was woven into a new one. Yeah. The other thing where it's not as depressing and existential is that they acknowledge the multiverse. Yeah. So they don't explain exactly how, but like if they, because they're acknowledging that there are multiple strands of reality, basically making changes to time could just create a new strand, right? And so... First of all, it doesn't break the time travel rules. <laughs> it, yeah. It's sort of a fun loophole that you just were operating in all strands of reality. But it also, I think, decreases that inevitability because there's multiple ways that things go and they can move in and out of those, quote unquote, inevitabilities that they could pick a universe that they want to be in, hypothetically, or they could create one, right? Yeah. So... It's not just they're moving in and out of time within a single strand of reality where things are always going to end a certain way. They're operating in and out of time in multiple strands where they can just pick one, (laughs) right? So I think it allows for a little more possibility and hope for them. I mean, because that's even what they say of how they're going to win is they're just going to pick a strand. They're going to make it habitable for them and safe. And they're just going to live in that little pocket universe forever. Yeah, it, it uh, follows the time travel rules while also creating like a, a sense of hope, which is very cool. Yeah. And it, I think a very clever way to do it. And what's interesting is like the love story, rather than adding to the tragedy, though it does create a lot of angst, which is great. It actually is what they use to help subvert that feeling of inevitability. Right, because they are tech. Their agencies are trying to claim as many strands as possible for a particular end that they already know. And so, actually, the love story is how they escape that inevitability, and they find their way into finding joy in like the little facts of their existence. Right? They they talk so much in their letters about like the flavor of a certain tea, like rose hip tea, and like comparing each other to the sunset and the sound of water or a volcano or like even their letters are written in sensations, right? It's in a smell, it's in uh, moving lava, it's in a flavor. Some of the most emotional ones are like Red eats a seed and the flavor tells her a story and then she's like crying in in like the Neolithic period (laughs) alone. 
And all of their questions are about like, do you hunger? Do you dream? Do you have these crucial human experiences? And they bring out those sort of sensory experiences out of each other where their respective agencies would try to squash them. Yeah, it's it's a really, really clever, on all these different levels, this book is a very clever subversion of a lot of the storytelling and techniques and tropes that we're used to seeing in time travel stories. So kind of like in conclusion, in closing, I think, and we've we've talked about this before we sat down to record, like this book could have been a recipe for a ridiculous disaster of, you yeah. know, it's Romeo and Juliet, time travel, and it's this, like, flowery prose that feels like a poem. It could have been very melodramatic. It could have been, you know, the sci-fi rules could have all been broken. It would have been ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But it works. And I think, for me, why it works is, as many of the things we talked about, it is subverting the genre of star-crossed lovers. It's subverting the genre of time travel and love stories. And I think the tightness of the story and the writing really sells it all for me. So the authors aren't trying to build out this huge immersive world that explains every element of this time travel and all the history and the politics. Instead, it it focuses very narrowly on these two characters, on our star-crossed lovers, and weaves in all the fantastical time travel and sci-fi stuff into the context of them finding each other. And, like, Mm -hmm. coming together as two humans falling in love. And I think that's what, like, really sells it for me as, like, this is an all-time favorite read of mine, is that it it does all the things, but not too much of them. It does just enough in this, like, tightly packed novella to leave you, like, ugh, I want to read this again. Yeah. I agree with all of those points. I think another thing that makes it work that, like, I didn't know where else to put this idea in our discussion because I feel like this is a whole different take on the book but something that I feel like makes it work for me is like they don't bother trying to explain the technical stuff like you said they're just like you can read DNA sequences great okay so (laughs) but what does provide that context there's this sort of overarching narrative that brings the whole story together this sort of backdrop thematically through the sort of what the two agencies represent, the agency and garden. They're sort of the two extremes of worldview that we see all over the planet, right? So garden is very ground up, right? They're all one body, one consciousness, whereas the agency is all top down, right? It's extremely disembodied. It's extremely technological. And so they're them being at war, trying to make reality in their image that's sort of the thematic backdrop right and then we have these two characters who don't address it directly but they're coming from these two realities and they're not happy or whole or fulfilled until they are literally in conversation with each other through these letters and eventually are like consumed by each other. So it's sort of the the merging of these two big the ends of the spectrum of human experience and worldview and all that kind of stuff that sort of bring them happiness and bring them together. And I feel like that's, it's never touched on super directly. I felt like the whole time I was reading it, I was like trying to write that essay in my head of like how I, how I would argue this point, but I don't have to, I have a podcast. I can say it here. (laughs) But to me, that really made the story work in a way that was very thematic and theoretical, where rather than providing all the technical backdrop, you provide these sort of like emotional thematic backdrop. I really appreciate hearing your read on that. I think it's like a really nice way to like tie it all up and think of not only the individual story of these two people, but like the larger narrative it's having about what it means to have dialogue across differences. So, okay, this is an old segment we haven't done in a long time. Uh, shoutouts and shutdowns. I don't think we have any shutdowns, so we're just going to do shoutouts. <laughs> Some of my favorite references in the book is there's a... Blue has a favorite version of London that's very, like, steampunk. It's a delight. And, like, she... Like, it's her personal, like, 
little secret that she like loves to sit here and just like have her tea and a little coffee shop and uh, or a little tea shop. It is just one of my favorite little nuggets in there. The fact that they're like both friends with Genghis Khan or they're both friends with these like major political leaders across time and space (laughs) in different strands. And they're like, oh, yeah, say hi to Genghis Khan for me. They're like, oh, yeah, say hi to Caesar or whatever Roman senator they were referencing. Like, to me, that was really funny that they had both experienced these important people in certain moments and were like mutual friends. (laughs) They were like, like, go say hi. Uh, That was great. I liked uh, when Blue recommends a book to Red and it was, you know, very book club moment of like you should really go read this book and instead of saying like oh where can you go get that book in the library or like where could you find it at the store she's like it's in this strand it's these strands tend to have the book Um, and i don't know it's just kind of enjoyable and it's a real book um i have it now on my like to read list i'm intrigued i also really enjoyed uh the creative ways that they reference the colors blue and red specifically in their salutations at the beginning of the letter so the one that got me in the giggles was <laughs> Blue Daba D. It's that song. It's by Eiffel 65. It was like a one-hit wonder thing. Oh! So yeah, that's the song. Yeah! Blue Daba D. Okay, I'm glad. Yeah! I didn't know what this song was called! I didn't catch that the first time. (laughs) I thought it was just scatting. (laughs) It's just scatting. Oh, that's great! Yeah, one others that got me the giggles. Dearest 0000FF, which is the, like, hex code for a color blue. It's specifically, I think, yeah, it's just blue. It's like the the main blue. And this one I didn't know. I had to look it up. But miskowanze mm. is the Ojibwa word for red light. And oh. that is in the section where blue is embedded in like a pre-Columbian North America. Yeah, I feel like my final thing that I just love i i feel like i will always be a sucker for like a story about all powerful beings who work for enemy agencies who bend time and space just to like hang out and drink some tea together to me that is just like the ultimate story it's so to me so deeply it just gets me in the feels about like being a human being and being a living creature and it reminded me so much of this felt like an angsty version of like a zero fail and Crowley and good omens. Mm-hmm. Cause they, they do the same thing. They just, they're the tone is totally different Yeah, <laughs> where they're just like, we're going to be on our own side. Which leads so nicely into our yeah. recommendations for people who enjoyed this book. What would you recommend they read next? Yeah. So I would definitely re- recommend good omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Obviously, very different tone, but uh, that was what it made me think of. I also, in the tradition of books that I absolutely love and can't get enough of, I created a playlist for this book that I spent so many days on. I can't even begin to explain to you how many hours I spent on this playlist, but I really, really love it. I listened to it for all, like, 24 hours of plane ride getting back to the states and it's you know it's very very angsty and beautiful it's a delightful uh playlist i have listened to it quite a bit oh thank you yeah my only recommendation is the book that blue recommends to red which i'm now recommending to myself and all of you is uh travel light by naomi mitchison and i'm excited to check it out i was reading a little synopsis of it today and i'm like ooh, fascinating and closing out our very long episode, what are you currently obsessed with? What's bringing you joy? All right. So I spent all last night finishing A League of Their Own, the TV series on Amazon Prime about uh, women's baseball league in the 1940s. And it's incredible. You think it's just going to be like a baseball story with like a gay side plot, but it's kind of the reverse. <laughs> Love so, it. So, yeah, it's so, so good. Just like a team of women supporting each other and their dreams. Oh, man. It's good stuff. 
my currently obsessed this week uh julia is in the same country you caught that little tidbit she flew back to the states and i'm like counting down the days until we get to meet up in uh washington state that'll be a delight i think by the time this episode comes out we'll be there i'm also obsessed i mean i was trying to think like i haven't really been reading much lately I haven't really been watching anything. And I'm like, well, what have I been doing? I've been dog sitting all week. That's what I've been doing. I've been hanging out with a dog and he's adorable. His name is Sherlock. Aww. He's a Cocker Spaniel. He does not do well with other dogs, but he's great with hmm. people. So he just, he's like literally just sitting in a dog bed right outside the store, probably with his head like lolled off to the side. And he's adorable. Okay. But I have been listening to something. I've been listening to the album, Hold the Girl by mm-hmm. Rina Sawayama and it's been on repeat for me like every day when I go for a run or for a walk or just need a song to play when I'm brushing my teeth because apparently I have to have a soundtrack all the time this is what <laughs> I've been listening to <laughs> and yeah. yeah it's a great album like all the way through mm. really enjoying it well thank you all for joining us for this yeah. is how you lose the time more and if you haven't read it and you aren't convinced yet by the end of this episode Wow. Disappointment. Yeah. No, just kidding. I mean, to each their own. It sounded like your friend didn't really (laughs) love it, so I shouldn't be too critical of people who didn't enjoy it. I Yeah, I guess I would say if you had a little trouble at the beginning, try again, because I promise it's worth it. And you don't have to understand what's happening to really enjoy it. Clearly, I did not. (laughs) I learned new things in the last hour about a book we were supposed to be talking about. Thank you for listening to Book Club with Julia and Victoria. We would love to hear your thoughts on this book or the topic we discussed. So you can share your review and recommendations with us on Instagram at bookclubwithjv, on our website, bookclubwithjv.com, or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit our website for show notes with links to all of the recommendations and the things bringing us joy. If you don't already, go ahead and follow us on whichever podcast platform you are listening on so that you can be notified when our next episode is released. This episode was co-hosted and produced by myself, Victoria Bruick, along with Julia Clausen. Rebecca Gasney provides us with project management support. Our music is composed by Greg Bruick, and our logo was designed by Gabby Fabland. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs> <laughs>